Good morning and welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at the early Lichtenhauer longsword glosses. I'm your host, Mike Smorridge, and joining us are our usual panel of Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chillister, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. This is episode 15, where we'll be discussing line 50 on the Tverhau. So what have we been up to since the last recording? Johanna? Uh, the usual, so not much. I, <laughs> I, I try to collect all wild theories I ever made, because... My club and me, we usually get together on Discord every other week um, to talk about sources and stuff. And I volunteered. Okay, uh, we (laughs) have gotten through so many topics that we're kind of looking for interesting topics that we haven't had already. So I volunteered to talk about really, really wild, wild theories out there. And I'm just trying to collect all the really, really wild ones I ever made. Um, if you know of any, just please tell me. I am. So, so wild theories. Yeah, you mean I'm... looking at the sources or interpretations or oh, explanations? Um, everything. I, I've been thinking. <laughs> Here's one I came up with recently. Then, um, uh, the reason Zverchow is actually a cr- uh, corruption of dwarf cut, right? Zverchow. Oh, yes. Sure. Um, and the reason it is, is because you have to get really close to hit them with a strong properly, so it's a cut that means you're getting very close to the opponent, so it's a good cut for dwarves. Alright. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> I'll write it down. Wouldn't that yeah. mean that a dwarf would have to get even closer than anybody else? Well, it's it's like metaphorically a dwarf, right? It's really short, you're really close. <laughs> it's, it's a good cut for when you're under your opponent, right? Yeah. So like they're standing on you, like in Fiore? I don't... what? <laughs> we know that yeah, know. pretzel seller in Hutter. Uh, sorry, what did you say? <laughs> uh, uh, Johanna, make sure that you don't forget uh, my favorite wild theory, which is that uh, Joachim Meyer faked his own death and changed his <laughs> name to Fabrice. No, no, no. <laughs> Joachim Meyer was killed by Salvatore Fabrice when he was working as an assassin. Oh, this is great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Was this when they were both teaching Shakespeare? There is, yeah, that's one of the rumors about his life. Um, Allegedly, during a performance of a Shakespeare play, where I forget which royal person, he was supposed to arrange an assassination where, like, the fight scene was going to get out of control, and one of the actors had a sharp sword and was going to accidentally stab the noble in the front row. Um, But this, this is probably never even sort of happened. It's just a historical rumor. I mean, in a way, in a certain, um, you know, from a certain point of view, Fabrice did kill Meyer because, you know, in the same way that Darth Vader killed Anakin Skywalker. <laughs> sure. Uh, Matt right. Gallus pointed out that, that the preeminent German fencing master of all time is not Lichtenauer, but it's actually Fabrice, since he was the primary master studied by Germans for like 300 years. Whereas Lichtenauer is only like 150. Germans were still doing small sword based on Fabris into like the late 18th century. This is a good and, topic. And nobody and else also like, the Italians forgot right? about him and Germans didn't. Sorry, Mike, you what, what uh, did you say? say and, and also Meyer's French, right? Meyer's well, French, Swiss. oh yes, of course. He's Swiss, <laughs> but he lived in France. I I, I just want I just want the wild theories to be uh, researched and well, like, um, based on sources. So if you have any, just 
drop me well, a note or whatever. My I, most wild theory is on about Talhofer that he <laughs> actually didn't know anything about Lichtenauer beyond buying um, the Gotha manuscript that has the title written in it. And that was his first and last and only exposure to Lichtenauer. But based on that manuscript, he built a whole career making fencing manuals. And yeah, he didn't know what any of those any of those techniques were. He just sort of made stuff up to go along with it. It's probably um, true. Because we, we actually don't know that he authored anything in that manuscript. He, it has its owner's mark at the beginning, but it doesn't actually have any evidence of him writing content. Um, and it's different from all of his later manuscripts, although the art is very similar. And a lot of the pictures are very similar, but the text is not. Okay. What text there is. All My... Right. No, no. <laughs> go ahead, Terry. Okay. Um, my latest one is that the the pretzel man in York, uh, Jörg Wilhelm Hatter. Do you know which one I mean? So the one yep. guy in the background with the pretzel. Okay. My wildest theory is that this is Hans Mädel. Okay. Hear me out. <laughs> <laughs> go on. Okay. The dwarf, eh? There is. There is, or there was, a gravestone in Salzburg that says Johannes Schirmeister. Which could imply that there is a fencing master buried there um, who goes by the name of Johannes or Johann or Hans. So a fencing master called Hans in Salzburg. That could be Hans Mädel. Anyway, on the gravestone, or it, it also says or it implies um, that the, the guy buried there was also a member of the Salzburgan uh, Baker's Guild. So um, my news wild theory is this guy there is Hans Mädel. Yeah, fight me. <laughs> nice. That's not a stretch at all. <laughs> totally logical. Thanks. Very right. well researched. So, so leaving mild and wild theories to one side for a moment, Michael Chittister, what have you been up to? I spent the past week, week and a half building the a article for Nicoletta Giganti on Wichtenauer. Um, which now includes not only an English translation, but also French and German period translations from 1619. Um, and mm. obviously his original, with, with the transcription of his original. So that took quite a lot of effort and new illustrations and so on. And I had to do a bunch of research on the actual history of his book, since none of the publications on Giganti to date have actually been very well researched or covered a lot of that information. So. A lot of time poking catalogs and looking through libraries, trying to find all the different editions that allegedly existed and so on. Is that primarily his first book? Yeah, I had so the I'm trying to get scan. I've been trying to get scans of the second book for quite a while, um, but the Wallace collection, I finally are are willing to scan, get it scanned now, but they are shut down because of the plague. And yeah. Toby Capwell said that they probably wouldn't be able to return to normal operations to like November. So at some point we'll add the scan to the second book and work on the transcription and translation and so on. But as of yet, they're not available. Which there's a funny thing. So the this uh, Jakob de Zeder wrote a, did a French and German translation of Giganti in 1619. And he also attached a second book, which he called Giganti's second book, um, but is actually, the second book of Fabris, which was just attached um, with no explanation or no credit, um, which was sort of a scandal later on. A, a later German author accused Giganti of plagiarism, 
which he said trans the word translates to theft of children plug in <laughs> and was like this guy was a jerk and he was not giving fibers to proper credit and Gigante was probably dead at the, when the book was published and not involved at all but there's a lot of people on the internet who who've been passing around that copy of fabris that was called Gigante's second book and saying that you know oh well we don't need the um pym's translation of Gigante's second book because we already have it here it was published in 1619 and no it was not that's not even sort of the same and if you read them they don't even make sense together they're totally different teachings anyways cool. so yeah Gigante now has a full treatment on wicked hour check it out a lot of work it's a very nice page yeah i'm just having a quick scan now and it's cool many other pages do they have both uh modern english and original and other language translations side by side when there are so right i, I don't put modern translations on the pages i usually link to them in like a pdf document but historical translations um i do include on the pages when they're available so mm. yeah and because they have you know historical fencing value in addition to being a different language rendering of the text um, but th th this one is interesting because 17th century authors and 16th century have this annoying habit of writing giant monoparagraphs where like they'll have a single paragraph that runs on for five pages. Yeah. And the translator said that was said that was dumb and broke up Giganti's massive paragraphs into much smaller, more easily read paragraphs. He chunked it out in his translation. And I was able to use that as a guide to break up the Italian and the English translation into more uh, a more easily read form as well. So Zetter made, made at least one important contribution to Giganti's work in Brilliant. making it easier to read. Cool. Thank you very much, Michael. Uh, Steve, what have you been up to? Mostly stuff related to what we're going to be talking about in this episode, hopefully, because I was trying to work it out and figure out how to make it work in fencing. So I got like two fencing, um, two opportunities in fencing with, with, you know, fetters to try the stuff. And I think maybe I figured some stuff out, but I think it needs a lot of work. That's fair. How in fencing, that's fair. How's probably like my weakest area from like the two faced and, and like understanding those ideas. You know, when you're in close, obviously it's it's easy to just spare copter somebody. But yeah, so that's what I did. Uh, Tell you what have you been up to? You discovered any more cocktails? Uh, I have <laughs> not discovered any more cocktails. Actually, uh, there appears to only be one cocktail named after a famous fencer, uh, and I don't want to try the uh. Long Point Zombie. Um, <laughs> uh, which, if you want the recipe, is a double of salmiaki followed by a fin hitting you over the head with a two by four. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> Uh, you don't feel it at that point. But what I have done uh, is I finally got my super flexible uh, fetish foils from Bloss.pl, uh, Mark Hellman's uh, shop. Um, so there are a couple of fetish with about 90 centimeter blades, 28 centimeter hilts, and weighing one kilo each and flexing at about six to seven kilos. Uh, very light, very flexible fencing toys. Um, so once we nice. reopen my club, I'm looking forward to getting the chance to use those for one lighter sparring and also, uh, individual lessons in similar contexts where I want to take a lot of thrusts or a lot of cuts without getting bruised to shit or concussed. 
Do they seem to have potential to fill the need for a foil-like fetter? Uh, I think so, yes. It'll, it's going to take a bit of time to test them out and find out how well the blades hold up. Um, probably by the time this episode is coming out, my club will be mostly starting to start back up, uh, maybe in a couple of weeks. So I'll give them some use and see how they hold up in thrusts, but they seem pretty promising so far. They've got nicely thickened points uh, and a really good flex profile uh, with a, all the bend up in the week. Does this mean you won't be building the experimental sword where you actually mount a foil blade in a swing? That depends if the uh, the swing comes back out again. If it does, I might try it anyway. But all that I've no. seen so far was a, well, we'll try and do it, and it hasn't yet showed up. If, if the Duchies had been able to release that during COVID, they would have been making mad bank. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, they might have missed the opportunity. It, yeah, but I don't know if they've managed to get it out is the problem. To be fair, yeah. I think they've got their the programmer manufacturing is starting to start up again, and that's probably what they're using their machines on now. Understandable. So... Um, yeah. What have I been up to in the last few weeks? Um, not a whole lot of thinking. Mostly getting to plan for a tournament that we've got in September. So that was trying to run... Six, we're going to try and run like six different weapon sets in one day with enough space for two pieces. So trying to work out how to get as many people fencing as many people. Turns out, if you do single elimination, you can run a round robin pool of nine in forty-five minutes. So, busy, busy, busy with that. Do you mean single exchange matches? Yeah, single exchange matches. What I nice. say? You said single elimination, which doesn't oh, make yeah. much sense with a pool structure. <laughs> <laughs> no, it does not. All right, guys, it's not even seven in the morning. Leave me alone. My brain hurts. <laughs> um. All right, sweet. Let's look at the text. Um, Johanna, would you be able to start us off with a German version of this couplet? Yes. Twer mit der Stärke, dein Arbeit damit merk. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And Steve, could you give us uh, Harry's translation? Cut a twer with the strong and be sure to work on. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Steve. Jerry, just getting a text message there. Yes, sorry. <laughs> no worries. I'm resolving the issue. <laughs> so this couplet then leads on to a whole bunch of plays in the glosses. Is that right, Steve? Yes, that is correct. Do you, Would you be willing to, to give us some of those plays or explain some of those plays quickly? I would love to. Okay. Thank you. So the the order in which they come in depends on which source you look at. So I'll go with the Ringek Danzig order, I guess. So the first uh, situation is so okay, you cut in its fair how and your opponent parries. So the first situation is your opponent uh, holds strongly against you, and in that case, you uh, strike at him with crossed arms um, behind the swords blade to the head. I think like, uh, uh, like a player type thing. Yeah, I think uh, yeah. Danzig and Lev both use the word uh, Duplerin. Uh, Ringek does not seem to, but he's clearly describing a Duplerin. So his cool. second one is another strong option, which is shoving them out of the way with your cross card and cutting around to the other side. The third one is looks like so. So the, the third and fourth are both soft, 
options if they're soft at the sword. Uh, the third one is the neck slice. So you place your blade on their neck. And the fourth one is the mutiran. So you go strong to weak and stab them below. Cool. Brilliant episode over. Thank you very much, Steve. Yes. We can go home. <laughs> <laughs> and it all works. Just just go do it. It's that simple. Yeah. So, Drill it not, once and you can do it in sparring. It's not simple. Okay. They're very they're very difficult to do, which is what it's kind of uh, a big part of what I've been trying to do in fencing. But you know, just just working on something for two weeks isn't really enough. I don't have. Yeah, yeah. A, big, a big question to answer is why don't we do any of these things in sparring? Why are these less advantageous for us than doing its record capture, which is not described here? Because these plays rely on feeling the bind, and we can't do that these days. It's my facetious answer. I mean, I'm not sure that's entirely wrong. The The fact that the classic Tverhau continuation isn't in this section is, I think, really interesting. And probably the idea that just people are assuming they'll get a very strong bind and cutting around by sheer speed works uh, really well. Possibly also a shout out would be to uh, Nordic scoring rules, uh, which tend to encourage staying quite high and keeping the hands in front of the head. Uh, Tverhaucopter is a pretty hard action to punish effectively under those rules. So it works really well. Um, and if something works, people will just do it. There's no need to do something more complicated that's easier to fail if the simpler action works just as well in the game you're playing. Yeah, I agree with that. I have a couple, maybe other possibilities. So oh, one, sorry, sorry, I was just going to say my third um, uh, thing for it, now that I actually realize or remember what we're talking about, is that... Um, uh, the counters against these action, the Tvercopter aren't really trained very hard in a lot of places, and they aren't trained in a way that makes them effective. Um, so people learn them just as kind of cool moves, but not in a way that lets them apply them under pressure. Uh, and so if it doesn't get countered, why would you ever stop doing it? We'll, we'll get to that when we talk about the counters, but are the counters actually designed for the Tvercopter or just for the single cut around that's described here? Well, the Tverkopter is just a series of cutarounds, right? Yeah. So you got you got to start with a single cutaround, and then you just do more in a row. But what's described here is not a simple cutaround, is it? It's where you're in a strong bind, and so you hook your opponent's sword with your cross to shove. It yeah, out of but the nobody way. ever does that play. Right. That's the point, yeah. right? So it's um, a very different cutaround. Yeah, but the right. counters the counters aren't countering against that. They're countering against a simple cutaround. Hmm. Yeah, the counters don't describe the hilt knock as being a thing your opponent yeah. does. Like when they talk about the uh, the four slices, like they talk about the over slice, they never say anything about your opponent hitting your sword away with the hilt. Have you ever tried it with that with the horse, with the sword hook? I have not. I'm curious now if it'll work or not. I've tried it very briefly, and basically your sword's gone and you can't do anything. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I don't think I've ever tried drilling the counters with the the knock the the knock's not so easy to do though because like it depends where they're parrying like you got to be you got to get close you so you need to get your cross guard like in you have to be in distance where you can get your cross guard to touch their blade yeah that actually swings back to the thing i probably wanted to bring up first in this discussion which goes right back to the couplet and says that you tear with the strong um before it talks about any of these plays it's talking about throwing your 
Terhal with the to bind with the strong of your sword on their sword, yeah. and what that implies about the range and the part of your blade you're using and so on. Um, so if people have thoughts on that, I'd be interested. Yeah, I actually I, I want to go back to why these aren't used, and I was going to say that's one of the reasons because the distance is very difficult to get right. That's probably the biggest thing I was having trouble with, like trying this in in fencing, is getting close enough to actually like be able to perform one of these, you know, it's fair house with the strong, like I feel like you're supposed to. If we take the setup that's given in, in Lev um, and implied in the other texts of where your opponent is very close to you when you begin your first fair, it probably makes it easier. I know that's not how we often use it, where we throw it with the intent to hit with the, with the tip of the sword um, and we throw it at a wider distance. But if we if we were to only ever use the tear when someone is that close, I th that would that make it easier? I believe it would. Like it's hard to close with the tear that way. If, if yeah. we were, rely on it as the fallback for when they close against us. So in uh, there was an article written, I, I think we linked it in the last episode by the Ternovsky Sermiarsi Sek, um, whose club name I mispronounced horribly. Uh, apologies to you folks. Is that Trenava? Yes. Honka Hutovich, Martin Tabinsky, and the, the other guy. I'm so sorry. Those guys, right? Um, but they wrote an article several years back arguing for getting really close with the Twer. And it has some several interesting benefits. One, it obviously gives you a bind where it's using your strong. They're trying to cut pretty much with the mid blade to the head. So it gives you a very strong bind with your strong. And it also makes a very steep angle with your sword. And something you see, I think. Uh, certainly I've seen people talk about with Treyers is the idea that you know you get the edge of their sword coming over the crossguard and hitting you on the hand or on the glove. And if you're getting super close, that stops happening a lot. The angle becomes a lot wider. Yeah. And the the protection offered by your crossguard actually increases significantly. It seems like it's easier said than done, though, because often people oh, don't yeah. want to approach you close enough for you to do that. And it's really hard to charge in with if you're getting the track with the Tverhow. You're also passing through like distances where other attacks are possible. So like you're way within like you've you've passed stabbing distance like twenty minutes ago by this point. And you've passed the distance where they can hit you with like with the edge with an Oberhow, and you're getting even closer than that. So there's like there's several level, like levels of distance that you have to pass through in order to get to the distance where you can effectively do this. Yeah, it, it requires getting really, really close um, if you want to take it that way. Yeah. So how but, do you do this? Do you just try to pressure them into not attacking you while you walk 10 feet towards them? Well, it's hard. That's how I tried to do it. Yeah. Um, uh, and if you have a... This is an idea I've talked about a couple of times previously, but if you have a strong set of defensive actions you can use while closing distance, then often people will be hesitant to try and initiate an attack against you while you're closing on them, uh, because they're worried that you'll be that you'll do something else which messes them up at that wider range, right? And that's what I was just thinking of, is your model for marching, I think you called it. Yeah, I and you see it in, you see ideas like this discussed in things like, similarly actually, the other thing is a lot of people prefer to have more compound, complex actions when they're attacking. Like they want to do multiple things, maybe a, a feint into a cut or something. And if you're collapsing distance on somebody, they actually can't do that. There just isn't the space. So... Epi 
yeah, that was basically where I was going to go. You can essentially neutralize their ability to do their attack if you take away the space they need to do the attack they want to do in. Like if I want, to, if the way I want to attack you is going to involve a feint followed by a cut, right? Then I can only really attack you if the distance is kind of wide. And if the distance is really tight, I'm going to struggle to do my attack because I can't do my feint uh, first, or I can't take your blade first, or something. So you can use that to help you collapse distance as well. And they kind of the two of them work in together, uh, work together with each other. So the the method that I usually think about when collapsing this much distance is to find a time when your opponent is going to step in, and also make a big, you know, advancing step at the same time. Yeah, that's super useful. And yeah. as a short fencer with short legs, I have to do that to do basically any attack. So I agree. But yeah, yeah. If you is, have somebody extreme even for that. If you have somebody stepping forward, it's much much easier to start closing distance on them. Yeah. And like you step forward once while they step forward, they decide they want to get away to make space to do their attack. Mm -hmm. So they have to stop. You step forward a second time while they're stopping. Now you can step forward a third time to hit while they're trying to retreat. That's a lot of steps. Well, if they're well, yeah, that is a lot of steps. But the first one's happening while they're advancing. The second one's happening while they're still. The third one, they're stepping backwards, you're stepping forward, so you're preserving distance. And if you're doing a big explosive spring, then you can collapse a bit of distance even in that. That's true. I wouldn't... I don't think you'd be able to rely on getting the correct different distance for the Tzverhau if the person's stepping backwards. Yeah, no. it'll be more of a struggle if they try to step backwards. Um, but if you're quick on your feet and making sharp small steps, you can probably land it while they're still in the process of trying to like reverse momentum. And then it's really hard for them to move. Right. Yeah. That that would be the, the ideal time. Yeah. Another thing that kind of crossed my mind while doing this was the timing of the actual swinging of the sword. Because the way I was trying to do it and the way I've kind of done it before is kind of as more of a parry, which I talked about last week. But the pro, and to do that, I would do like, still start at a, at a relatively close distance and do like a ballistic step forward and throw my sword out in front of my head to to block it to block my head like as I'm stepping out but the problem with that is it doesn't get your strong in presence fast enough so i was finding that a lot of times when i tried that i was just getting collapsed even though my arms were extended out like i didn't have my arms bent like with bad structure but I was still getting collapsed because my sword was 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 reaching presence too late, pretty much. So they could just catch my weak. So now my my new theory, my new idea is that you're supposed to do it the way the book says, which, wow. <laughs> which is get wow. in super <laughs> get in super close, <laughs> and then do the cut as you're springing to the side. So some maybe some radical stuff there but i'm shockingly controversial right yeah i, I know it just what you're saying feeds back a little bit into my gut instincts that all these long sword plays are meant to be performed at a closer distance than we normally see when we're playing long sword so we have i mean the zorn how obviously needs a lot of distance one game I find interesting for the distance stuff in long sword is a game we played a bit in my club before lockdown where we taped off a blade in thirds and then we said that you could only score 
anything with the tip third could only score as a thrust. Anything with the middle third could only score as a cut. And anything with the bottom third could only score as a slice. And like a lot of the stuff, the distance uh, balance, the distances you get from that work pretty well with a lot of the actions in the uh, in the plays, with a few exceptions, but mostly it works pretty well. Hmm. Uh, Michael, hmm? oh, did you have a point to add? Uh, no, I was going to tease T and say, but what about the Tver with the stronger we're just talking about? Well, uh, like. If I've cut the sword into three, I've still got the back half of the cutting section um, fits into the Tverhal uh, side because it's in the two halves of strong and weak. Well, this, the strong is for their blade. The middle is for their head, right? Also that, yeah. What? If I, right. if, I, if I try to put the middle of my sword on your head with a Tver, the strong of my sword is, the, like the very hilt of my sword is going to be what hits your blade, pretty much. Yeah, you make blade contact with the strong but you hit their head with the middle. At least that's the way I understand it. Yeah. If you like to um, uh, play with sharp cutting on Tatami and care about that result, uh, trying to always cut with the middle blade also works a lot better for that. So that's another interesting feature of it. Yeah. Cool. All right. Does anybody have anything else they'd like to say about these plays? Yeah. I oh, think yeah. Tons. I, I want to talk about... The differences between Lev and Ringek Danzig here. Because the Ringek Danzig oh, sequence, I think, is intuitive and reasonable. It starts with you bind, you do your duplarin, and if they're too strong for that, you cut around. And if they happen well, to parry weakly, then you can go into your typical mutirin. So it's a very similar setup to what we already saw for duplarin and mutirin, only with a different initiating cut. And Lev. It doesn't really thinking, say if, if they're too strong for X, then you do Y. Lev says that. Ringek and Danzig just say that you can pick one or the other. Yeah, that's because Lev's the better source. That's <laughs> true. Lev is the one that says if he is too strong for you so that you can't come to your technique, then throughout this sort of the hilt. Um, yeah. Whereas Ringek Danzig just say, do the Duplarin or do the hilt knock. But in either case, these are two actions that work against a typical strong parry, which we sort of assume that they're doing whenever it says he parries. And then if he does the setup for um, the weak actions, you can switch to those. But I can't figure out a way in which I can initiate the weak actions in Lev from my initial Tverhau. It seems to require, I don't know, particularly going with the theory that we floated before, that Lev is introducing um, eyes closed so-called techniques, where you're supposed to do the strike and then the first follow-up without waiting for any feedback from your opponent, I don't see how you can get there with this love sequence where you do a Tver and immediately try to take try to do the Mutirin. Well, he tells you how to do it. Neck. How? He says, By moving um, up to their weak. Exactly. What does that even mean? It means what you mean? lift your sword up towards help? their weak. <laughs> how does that help? What? What do you mean, how does that help? Because <laughs> you get better leverage. For what? For Mutirin. Come on, man. But the Mutirin <laughs> requires him to have his hands high. Why does it yeah. require that? But, because all but, the pictures show that. Yeah, but Michael, if he doesn't put his hands high, you do the next slice. It's do all you? The next slice isn't yeah. in Lou. I've never found yeah, the neck to be available is. there. I've tried that one out. Yeah. The neck is pretty much not really an option until further down, the ch until things Look, start happening. Work. I don't... How do you go to how do you go to his neck when he's when he's parrying your sword? He's specifically blocking that. 
So if you, what you can do, and I have some pictures of something along these lines, although I based it on the Ringek one, obviously, um, in the Illustrator Ringek, is you can lift the sword up and then kind of push down through the weak, and if their hand, and it will fold their sword down behind their hands, um, and you can get to the neck or you can get down to a lower opening via that kind of direction of travel. Well, when you rise, you're strong against their weak. You can, you have the strength now to push their sword to the side a little bit. So you push to the left a little bit, and then you lower your edge onto their neck. Or if they raise their arms, you lower it down to their lower opening. Yeah. And then you... if they don't let you do that, then you do the duplirin. Boom! <laughs> I, I'm going to need a, a video for this. Too early in the morning. got imaginary fences in my head, and it's, yeah. it's not working. So my so... follow-up question is, why would that be a better idea than... For example, the using the duplerin with your eyes closed action. The fact that it's not doing the duplerin as the, the immediate follow-up is interesting, though. Is there a, an assumed, uh, you've done a fair how they've parried their points in your face, so maybe you want to address that if they're weak? I think you're too close for their point to be in their face, or for their point to be in your face. If you're, if you're trying it, to hew with the strong, you certainly are. Yeah, if you're doing it the right way. I've never the... done fencing correctly in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why you have medals. Um, <laughs> so one uh, one possibility would be that the assumption is that they're going to parry by trying to kind of fall on your sword, and then they're going to be sort of on top of your sword and kind of forward, and then you can kind of lift up to carry the weak across and over. Oh. Would work. Like, I could see that as being a way to get into a... Um, uh, a mutaron type uh, type action, where instead of parrying with the point right. really high, they parry by more by kind of dropping the blade down onto your fur. Yeah, that's true. That and that would, would fit with some of the descriptions of how you parry the fur elsewhere in the glosses. Yeah, that's kind of like the. I don't know if anybody watched that video that I posted in the general chat, which I'll post in the. We'll post it with the episode of me doing that mutaron. Yeah, where you just kind of fell on the sword and then did the yeah. thing, right? Yeah, yeah. That, was, that, that, that was kind of the setup. It wasn't really, like, the best, like, sphere entry, but I think it, like, got the idea across. As far as why you go for the uh, Mutiran first, I have a couple ideas for that. First, it might be the most optimal outcome in in Lev's opinion. So maybe he thinks that by doing a mutirin you have the most control over your opponent. So you try to do that first and then if you can't do it you do like a less optimal thing. I think that the the two moves kind of flow into each other. And actually it was I think uh four years ago more than four years ago now, I was talking to Carl Bola and he actually like this was before Lev was like had its own Wichtenauer page, so I think he came up with this idea on his own. But he floated this idea to me that like when you're like in order to do these moves, you start with the like you start with the Mutirin, and then if you can't do that, you go to the Duplirin because like you start with the soft option, and then like as a default, and then if they're not soft or if it doesn't work, then that means that they're not soft, so you go to the hard option. And 
I don't know. I guess I guess you'll we'll need like a video for this, but like if you are trying to go strong to weak and you're trying to do the mutiran, but then he blocks that, you just wind your hands because your hands are to, on your upper left. If he blocks that, then you just move your hands to the upper right, at your crossed arm position, and you hit him behind the sword. So, to me, it's just like the uh, the winding, the 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 technique in uh, Danzig and Love's winding section, where he starts in right ox, and then blocks the cut to his upper left with the winding, and then if that's parried, he just winds to his upper right. So. It's not what I learned from winding from T, though. Well, you can blame Travis for whatever I told you on winding. The, so, yeah. I guess I guess where I get stuck on this is the idea that you'd want to begin with the weak option and then go to the strong option, um, which doesn't seem to mesh with a lot of what I, else I see in Lichtenauer. Um, and that, and the fact that I think that the mutiran flows into the deflurian flows into the mutiran really well, uh, much better than the other way around. But I think. The question of why Lev reversed the sequence is one that really needs to be answered if we're going to quote the theory that Lev is intentionally changing things and not just sort of scribes getting things mixed up. So here's where here's where it makes sense to me. So it follows the pattern set by the Zornhau. In, in the Zornhau... But the Zornhau begins with the Plaren, and then goes to Mutarin. No, no, no. Uh, no, no, go all the way back to the beginning of the Zornhau. So the Rathew point. So when you're doing the, the Rathew point, the first the first option is the soft option, where, where Lev doesn't say if he's soft at the sword, he just goes straight in for the point. But uh, Danzig Lev both start with the soft option of shooting in the point. And then if that doesn't work, if they're hard, then you do you know either Abnehmen or Vistakherviter. So it follows uh, that pattern, or that precedent that's set forth in the Zornhau. I haven't tried this with someone trying to execute the the sort of falling on the sword as described in the in the counters that we may or may not discuss. Um, so maybe that would make a difference for me. I'll have to give that a shot. Um, but I'm I'm still having trouble picturing it. One thing which I would say is that if they've fallen on your sword, the way you're going to be mutating is basically by coming back up and taking their weak a bit. And if they keep their weak held over you firmly to stop you from getting there, then you've really got a very good opening to duplier behind. So yeah. I could see that flow working. Like, if you're on top of my sword and I can't lift your sword up, then I can definitely push through behind it because you're busy pulling your sword down onto mine instead of pushing it anywhere else. Yeah, mm. or you or you like raise your tip, you, you bring your tip higher and closer to you. So you deny your weak to the other person. And that's another, you know, Good opening for Duplarin, I think. Yeah, you're doing something to like pull your tip out of presence or keep your tip out of the spaces I can get my blade to control. Right. Or if you're like me, if someone does its fair how, you're going to block it with your sword upright, and then you're immediately going to block the other side. And in that case, that's a good opening for Duplarin because you know that they're yeah. just going to do the fair <laughs> copter right away. <laughs> That's actually something I find quite interesting in the modern fencing game, is that Duplarin gives a... The pressure signal from starting to do Duplarin on someone feels a lot like the pressure signal of somebody leaving the bind, depending on exactly how you execute it. 
Um, yeah. So you can use that to create the opening that you're going to duplier into. Because as you start to duplier, they feel a reduction in pressure, assume you're going to cut around and remove their sword to increase the size of your opening, which is handy. Yeah. The other other thing that trips me up about these plays a little bit is that I keep forgetting who's doing what, because the actions that are described by the Tverha person all seem to make a whole lot of sense to be used against the Tverha. So I could see a mutating, I could see doubling, I could see cutting around against the Tverha. Um, so they're all like I keep in my head getting mixed up of who's in which action because I kind of want to do all those things against somebody who Tvers against me. Some of them seem like they might be easier. Yeah. Just me though. I have something that I brought up a while ago that I said I was going to have to defend myself when we got to this point in the <laughs> in the gloss. I don't know if anybody remembers, but I said that. Definitely not. Yeah, I guess I said that when they give you soft and hard options, there's always only two choices. And I'm going to try to explain my way out of this now because there appears to be four choices for the ring and I think there's five if you add in Ringek's extra one. Ringek doesn't have... No, Ringek only has four because he skips the Mutarin. Yeah. Ah. Okay. Yeah. Ringek replaces the Mutarin with a second next slice, but I believe it's the same yeah. basic action as the Mutarin against the same basic blade position, just a different finisher. Yeah. Ah. Okay. So I'm mostly, I'm mostly talking about Danzig for this one. So the, the thing that makes it only two choices is that the soft... And the hard, there's two choices for each of them, and they're both or decisions. So for for hard, you have the duplerian or shove his sword away. For the soft, you have the next slice or perform the transmutation to the lower opening. So we're in a the same situation as we are in like the um, what was it the the crumpow to the flats, where you do the stab or you do the cut. So they're not really four options. There's there's two options, but you pick which one's your favorite before you go in. Yeah, it's two options with two like executions for each. Exactly. So that's my uh, attempt to talk my way out of that. I'd probably agree with that. Um, something I find interesting about the Lev one here is that it's it's one of possibly the only place in any of the glosses where it talks about the difference between like a strong parry and a super strong parry. Mm, that's true. Uh, yeah. which, which is actually a really interesting variation that we don't particularly see otherwise. Yeah, he, he gives a distinction between the duplerin and uh, cutting around to the other side. So if he's too strong that you can't come to any techniques, I guess including the duplerin, then you cut around. He also gives another option, or if he wants to run in and take the slice under his arms. Yeah, that one's a cool, like, random addition here. Yeah, so... Well, we'll just explain this one sec, Steve. Um, okay, so, like, imagine you've cut a Tverhau, right? And yeah. they've parried. And yeah. they try and, like, push your sword up and just run in and wrestle you because your arms are high. Then you slice them in the arms. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I guess that would be like a a bypass of all of the other ones. So I guess in Lev you do make a decision right in the beginning. You either do the Mutirin or if he's running in you slice under the arms. So pretty much. I mean or this is something that could happen after the parry. I mean running in could be seen yeah. as the strongest parry where he's 
presumably using a cron-like position to just throw your sword out of the way and charge in. Yeah. Maybe, like, his thought process when adding that is, like, at any point in this action, if he runs in, then slice into the arms. Yeah, possibly. Um, it's an interesting little addition. Yeah. But hmm. I, I don't think we've actually like sat down and explain what's going on in Lev, even though we've been talking about it. So just to, <laughs> to sum it up, um, instead of having it as a uh, options of, of soft and hard when you bind, he has it as a sequence of actions. So when you bind, first you go for the Mutirin or the next slice, which he also considers um, a type of Mutirin. Um, and then if you cannot come to that, you do the Duplirin. And, and specifically, you, just to interject, you go to that by doing a particular action to get to their weak. Right. Um, yeah, you work uh, the strength of your sword to the weakness of, of their sword. And then if you can't do the Duplirin, if he's too strong for that, then you cut around. So it's just a, a sequence of do one thing. If that doesn't work, you do the next. If that doesn't work, you do the next. Which I think is cool. Ooh. It kind of... Again, as we were talking about before with Lev, streamlines the, the action a little bit and uh, kind of takes away decisions that you have to make regarding feeling soft or hard. Yeah, there's less... In the Lev sequence, there's less recognizing what the bind is and more attempting to create a particular bind. And if you're not allowed to create it, then you must have the alternative so you can do the other thing instead. Something... I've never really seen, I have a rough answer for it, but I've never really seen adequately answered for Ring of Kandansig, is how do you actually end up with a soft bind when you've cut in with a Tverhal with your strong? Like, how can you get to that initial situation without just hitting them in the head through their parry? Yeah, I think we we talked about that a little bit with the falling Ooh. on top of your sword. But that's not really soft. That's like, they're on your strength, right? You know, they put their strong on you. Yeah, I would say falling on the sword is a pretty strong parry. Yeah, does this come back to the hanging parry versus a upright parry? Right, for me, the soft parry is a hanging parry type position. The way I put this together when I taught this last as a class was I um, said you might get to these continuations, like the next slice and stuff, if they were shorter or if you were cutting a bit higher on a rising trajectory or something, your cut was actually passing over on a line over their head. And you can kind of carry carry it through the middle of their blade and move their blade around to get behind it in various ways. But I'm not fully wedded to it as a concept yet. If they fall on top of your sword, rather than doing like an upright, you know, uh, vertical, like parry so their sword's vertical, then their weak is available to you. Yeah, that's true, I guess. Um, you can kind of work your way, sh work back to the weak and take it from there. Yeah, so you yeah, so you can do the soft options if that happens, potentially. Yeah, but still in that case, you need to change the bind to make it soft, as opposed to recognize that the bind is soft, if the distinction makes sense. Right, and that's why Lev is better, because that's what he tells you to do. <laughs> uh, Steve, I'm not sure about Lev. So I agree that the that it's a sequence, or at least the Mutieren and Duplieren part is a sequence. But I think the the Umzwerchen or Umschlag, um, the, the strong bind uh, version, can also work without uh, the Mutieren and Duplieren at first. Because... 
there is this one sentence. Um, oh, what's it in English? Um, if he's too strong with his um, misplacing, um, so you can't come to the techniques. I, I think it could imply that the the umzwerchen or umschlagen can can be done without doing the mutieren and duplieren first. So it's not necessarily the mutieren, duplieren, umschlagen sequence, but yeah, that it works without the, the, the first part. Yeah. Yeah. I'd mostly read that as you're probably going to try to do them. And if you feel that you just like can't do anything else, then you do this thing. So like you try to yeah. shove their sword a bit. Okay, no, I can't. Bang. Done. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's definitely a way that you can read it. Yeah, so I think if if it's a really hard um, parry, you don't you don't necessarily have to go through all the muti and duplian um, stuff just to do the yeah umschlagen. Right, because sometimes you just know, you know, yeah. sometimes you know you're not going to be able to do anything. But I I I just saw that the translation on Wichtenauer, um I think it says. Oh, it uses the singular form of technique, and it's, it doesn't say techniques, but technique. Uh, yes. That's, okay. That's it an says. Thing, okay. <laughs> it says so that you can't come to oh, so that you may not come to the techniques. I ah, know technique, oh. but I think techniques would be more correct. Maybe this right. is the explanation as to why we just wear copter, because we already know that we can't do those other techniques. So we just. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we still don't knock with the hilt like you should be. Um, oh yeah. The other, I think, I think it's definitely plural. Sudenstuken. Yeah. Don't knock plural. it until you try it, T. <laughs> if we're thinking about wrapping this up soon, which I think seems like we've got most of it, it's probably worth mentioning very quickly that Danzig has a couple of reversals to the neck attacks. So one of the soft plays here is a slice to the neck. And Danzig has a couple of kind of crazy little reversals that you do when they're slicing your neck, which are pretty fun, that's, uh, weird. That's part of the counters, though. They're not counters against the terror. They're like, yeah. I mean, I guess we can put them in counters if you want to, but. Is the next episode counters? Or is Wait, that... no. Danzig doesn't have <laughs> counter. Oh, hold on. Sorry, I was reading the wrong section. I'm wrong. I'm talking about the break against somebody driving yeah, yeah, around yeah. your neck with the sword. We should also specify that the placing the blade on the neck is never specifically uh, called out as a slice in the books. It's always it's always just placing their sword on your neck. But oh, it's yeah. we we imply that it's a, a neck slice, and we usually call it the neck slice. Is yeah, it, no, that's a, that's a good anyway. What it's um no, it is the play before Ring X starts being illustrated. <laughs> GG. Uh, pretty much. Um, what what is done with it typically is it's used as a throw, which is actually quite a fun application of that sort of thing. So it's less and about if, the edge of the sword and more about the leverage. And if you're throwing someone like that, you, like if it's a sharp sword, you can be pretty sure that it's going to slice their neck. I would I would think. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about sexual rules? Never mind. <laughs> All right. Well, shall we wrap up here? You won't get a prize, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> no prizes for Steve. Next time. Next time. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening, everybody. This has been episode 15 of Fencing by the Book. Our panels there have been Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. And I've been your host, Mike Swaridge. Thanks. Bye.